listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day you're listening to, you're listening to Love That Album, episode 96. My name is Morris, and if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. I like to discuss records and other great music and sometimes do interviews because the name of the show is called Love That Album. I think it's fairly self-explanatory, but I'm happy to give you that explanation anyway. And as I said, what I like to do is invite other fellow music lovers, music nerds, people who are passionate about music, but this is not necessarily a show for nerds. This is just for people who want to get other people's thoughts on what makes a particular record or a particular artist great. And we have a particularly great one or great two albums today, but we'll, more about that in a few minutes. I'm rambling a little bit. Let me introduce to you my very, very special guest. He hasn't been on this program in a while, but it is the host of the all-time top 10 podcast, all the way from across the big pond, as he would say, all the way from Los Angeles, Mr. Ben Eisen. Good. Oh, it'd be your afternoon, wouldn't it? Good afternoon, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is afternoon here. And every, every time we uh, open our discussion, I have to uh, inquire about my future because it is Monday where you are and uh, you have seen my future. And, I, have, uh, I have seen your future and the world isn't destroyed yet. I, I, I was a little bit worried that there might be major civil strife and turmoil in your part of the world, but uh, it's, it's lots, of, lots and lots of uh, spot fires. But the, you know, we're worried about the future. This is a, this is a four a four year test of endurance for this country. <laughs> we're about to embark. It's a. Uh, Everyone's still in disbelief over here. I mean, everyone that I know, anyway. Well, unfortunately, but, it's not everyone because he got in. Yeah, things things are still unraveling as far as how it happened, why it happened, different ways that things might have been a little dicey, and uh, things are things are coming out of the woodwork right now, and uh, it, it's going to be a very interesting couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of years. We're going to see what happens. Mm. And as it turns out, I think we're actually going to have a little bit more to say that as part of this discussion in a few minutes. So what are we actually here to discuss? We're going to be talking about Simon and Garfunkel, which is in some ways very unusual because I don't tend to do iconic albums on the program very much, although I think the one other iconic album that I've, I think we've discussed has been with you on this program. That was Who's Next quite a long while ago. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have to insist on uh, being iconic. Look, sometimes you just got to do it. I normally sort of avoid it because I think, well, everyone has already got their thoughts and what can we bring new to the table? But I've taken on that challenge, Ben Eisen. You, you said, let's do this. I thought, all right, well, let's see if we can bring out something new or at least remind people of why these albums are so great in the context with which they came into. And the albums, I, I haven't actually said what the albums are. It's the final two albums, the final two studio albums, I guess, if you want to put it that way, because it was a live album in 19... 81. But Simon and Garfunkel's bookends from 1968 and Bridge Over Troubled Water, which got released, I think, in 1970. Where are my notes? It was recorded in 1969. 
That's right, 1970. Well, I'm going to rely on you to do the statistics because I know that that's your thing. So we'll come to that in a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, what we'll do is we'll quickly go to a break. Uh, Joanne will give you the contact details. And then, um, oh, I should also make mention that later on in the show, Eric Reanimator will come back for his monthly album I Love segment. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's related uh, to Simon and Garfunkel, but he has gone and picked a fine album nevertheless from uh, Canada's Crash Test Dummies, the 1993 album God Shuffle His Feet with the very, very distinctive voice of Brad Roberts. I love that guy's voice. I don't know if you're a fan, Ben, but... Um, I'm, I, I, yeah, I, listening to your voice, I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, curious to uh, hear you do an impression. You don't have to do it now, but uh, at I, some point, I want, I want to hear that chorus of that one song. You know, <laughs> he, he made many other fine songs, but uh, if uh, the audience is unlucky, I might give you a rendition of mm, 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 before the show's finished. Kind of did, just did just now. So. Oh, right. There you go. But I'll try to do it with some melody. There you go. Okay. All right. Anyway, we'll be back after a break, and Ben and I will start talking a little bit about Simon and Garfunkel. You're listening to episode 96 of Love That Album. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. All time top 10. Top 10 cheesy love songs. This song showcases everything that is awesome about Journey. Bombastic, tailor-made for the arena. Everyone's got their lighter out. Steve Perry's got his beautiful mane of hair and he's singing about being on the road. Top 10 rock trios. Dinosaur Jr., Jay Maskus, and Lou Barlow, and drummer Murph. The loudest band I've ever seen. Top 10 songs about the devil. My number eight is not the greatest song in the world. <laughs> it's just a tribute. Um, this is Tenacious G. Top 10 breakup songs. What's your number four? I gotta do um, the replacements answering machine. Nice. Not only is it about the distance, he's using the distance as a metaphor, you know, sort of like where it's like the, the relationship's gotten to a point where he's trying to connect with somebody and the extent of the communication is leaving a message on your machine. Top 10 rock wordsmiths. Randy Newman. In a lot of his songs, he plays like a narrator, but the narrator in these songs tells stories, but the narrator doesn't always tell the truth or he has kind of a skewed version of the story he's telling. That's a human foible. That's what we tend to do. Top 10 sports anthems. Little ditty called Jump Around. Yes, no, easily I, like 20 to 30,000 students jumping up and down at the same time. It is awesome. Number 10, 8, With your host, Ben Eisen. All-time top 10. And we're back from break. Morris over here, Ben over there, Ben of the All Time Top 10 podcast. And uh, later on, 
in this show, I'll be getting Ben to talk about his top 10, all-time top 10s, or at least give you some sort of feel. If you've not listened to the show, why the hell not? But uh, Ben will uh, give a bit of a plug at the end of the program and tell you, in case you haven't listened, where it is that you can track down episodes of the all-time top 10 podcast. Anyway, for the moment, let's talk about some Simon and Garfunkel, because that is what we are here for. So I guess the most obvious question, but I really want to know, as I'm sure our audience does as well, what is your entry point for uh, Simon and Garfunkel? How old were you? What was the first thing that you heard? Oh, boy. Well, <clears throat> let's see. My entry point would have to be the womb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing, I don't know. I mean, I've pretty much my entire life been been listening to their music. But my parents are, are, are in- interesting because they're nine years apart in age mm. um, and they have wildly different taste in music uh, for the most part. My dad loves 50s doo-wop because he's, he's the older one. He loves 50s doo-wop and Neil Diamond and Leonard Cohen and, and Buddy Holly and just uh, and like a lot of classical music and, and just an eclectic mix of that kind of stuff. And my mom is uh, more of a hippie. She likes, you know, likes Bob Dylan. She likes The Who. She, she likes The Beatles and The Stones and, and Deep Purple and bands like that. Wow. They're a very odd pair, but the one group, there's maybe a one or two, but the one in particular that they could both agree on, that they both loved with equal measure, as far as I could tell, was Simon and Garfunkel. And uh, they had a lot of their music on the, you know, on, in the record collection. And um, I can't remember a time when they weren't, their music wasn't in my life. The, with the 45 of the single Bridge Over Troubled Water was probably worn out by myself just because I don't know I don't know just it, the song to this day just strikes me it moves me it, it's there's something holy about it and it's uplifting and it's powerful and any I'll tell anyone that will listen to to this day I still believe this is it's the greatest song of all time you, you mentioned that on uh, on the podcast on all time top 10 a few weeks ago when uh, you were doing your uh, annual cover versions episode and I thought right well that's going to be absolutely ripe for discussion here so I guess it's a hard thing to sort of ask why a particular song would be the greatest for you of all time but is there one particular aspect is it you know what you said the the reverence the holiness what is it about that speaks it's, to you it's the message it, it's like i said it's the fact that i kind of grew up with it and i've always just had it playing in the background of 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 my entire life and uh I, I think anyone that's been friends with me for a long time will know that i've been saying that forever like that's it's not a new thing that's not like some kind of a thing that i've, re- I've recently discovered and like i can't tell you what my favorite movie is i've mm-hmm. got about four or six that are in contention and you know i can't tell you what my favorite tv show of all time is although it's a it's you know sort of a tie between Breaking Bad and The Wire. Other things in my life, you know, because because you know me, I love to rank stuff. Mm. Um, but the one, the most important thing in my life is music, and I feel I feel good that, to have that as my definitive number one, and I don't see it ever changing. So right, I've often gone and said to anyone who'd listened that my first real rock and roll epiphany was hearing Twist and Shout as a as a ten year old back in 1975. So I think the, the year of your birth. Josh, mm-hmm. I'm feeling old. Uh, <laughs> uh, up until ten years old. All I thought, well, all I could recall listening to was uh, classical music. Um, the, the younger of my two sisters, although they're both older than me, all she'd ever played at home was classical music. And she got that from my father, you know, like 
like your parents, both my parents were big uh, music fans, and but my father in particular was into uh, opera and classical music, and that's you know through my my father and my sister, I got uh, my love of classical music. Mm-hmm. And you know, a, a school friend went and brought around a copy of Twist and Shout to my place, and I had this epiphany. And yet, my oldest sister, you know, when I just sort of, if I was to be really honest. She had a copy of the Sounds of Silence album. I recall before, well before 10 years old, wearing that out. Uh, yeah. But it never struck me that that was a rock and roll album. I always just sort of put that into the folk bracket. And you know, one sister was more into the English folk music and uh, the other one was into the American folk music. But when you really think about it, in some ways, it is a rock and roll album not in the sense that maybe some of the other groups of the time it's not like a beatles style rock and roll album or or anything like that but given that you know rock and roll seemed to be a a a more broad church than what we tend to think about from the time it's not all about eddie cochran or elvis presley or you know or or, you know always being really wild You, you know we could sort of count roy orbison as rock and roll and but it's not in the eddie cochran type of sense but yeah i listen to sounds of silence a lot does have some electric guitar on it. Uh, yes, it does. Although, I mean, the, the, so the story goes, the actual song Sounds of Silence, which had appeared on their first album, which is probably their only real folk album, uh, Wednesday yeah. morning, 2 a.m. Uh, 3 a.m. Oh, excuse me, 3 a.m. Sorry, I, I told you I'm one hour into the future. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that uh, so that song unbeknownst to them at the time had been redubbed by session musicians and, and a producer Tom Wilson which you know both you know, Simon and Garfunkel were horrified at the thought reportedly yeah, but that, was, that was a brilliant move even though the the tracks that they added were slightly off I don't know if you if you take a listen to that revamped version of Sound of Silence everything is like I mean it's, it probably was hard to add all that stuff you know without uh, help from the artists because mm. you're just going off of their basic rhythm. And when you're just playing it as an acoustic, you're not really thinking about, you know, this has to be to a click track or anything like that. So it's it's slightly off, but it was a pretty brilliant move on their part, considering what was in the zeitgeist at the time, you know, mm. like Rolling Stone and House of the Rising Sun. And like, you know, this folk folk rock thing, quote unquote, was it's huge. And here's this great song that no one's heard. And, you know, as far as anyone knew, this was the definitive version, even though Paul Simon, like you said, was, was like mortified by it. Right. I mean, that was about after Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. sort of, well, stiffed. That was about the time I think he went over to London, uh, spent, was it about a year or so there, uh, recorded the album, which got to be known, I think, the Paul Simon songbook, which features maybe about seven or eight songs that ended up on Sounds of Silence anyway, being I think homework there. I think leaves that are green. Yeah. I think that, um, going, going back real quick, I wanted to mention that mm. Paul and Art both attended uh, the same schools growing up. They met when they were about eleven or twelve. They both attended Parsons Junior High School in uh, Queens, yep. and uh, that's the same school my dad went to. Oh wow, nice. Yeah, he told me that he actually was a student there at the same time as Paul. Oh wow. Did he say? Oh yeah, I saw him in the play yard. He was a real asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Paul was actually two years older than my dad but uh he definitely like looking back at his old yearbooks he can he can find him in there oh wow that's a how about that i'm I'm speaking two three degrees of separation from paul simon (laughs) it's it's something i guess but uh yeah they i mean they went way back and they had been you know singing together since they were 11 or 12 and they even had that hit and uh, well, I don't know if it was a hit. It was sort of a minor regional hit. Hey, yep. school girl. Hey, school girl in the 
1957, they were named, they were called Tom and Jerry, mm. uh, sort of that Everly Brothers kind of thing. Um, uh, right, and I, I think, was it that Art Garfunkel, I only read like in recent days, that he, um, he calls up Tom Graff because of his love of mathematics. <laughs> Graff. Graff, Tom Graff. I can't remember what uh, Jerry was, what, what, what you know, his surname was, but Artie called himself Tom Graff. Yeah, but, but, but I wanted to mention that, you know, they go, how far back they go as friends, as collaborators, because um, the two albums we're going to talk about, especially Bridge Over Troubled Water, document the, the ending of their professional relationship, and, you know, for, mm. for most part. And it's pretty, some of it's pretty heartbreaking, you know, like we're, we're going to get to the song, some of the particular songs, but Bridge Over Troubled Water, the album, is basically like a document of like the end of everything for them, you know, like as the as a duo as a partner as partners as friends for the most part i don't know if they were ever not not friends but they totally drifted apart you know mm-hmm. and, and it's documented on record it's pretty pretty incredible well there was um, an interview that i read from a newspaper article i think maybe only about four or five years ago and you know i don't know whether it's fair or not but I, I think both Art and Paul, both of them have gone and placed some of the, the blame from their separation on Mike Nichols because he'd gone and um, uh, originally hired the both of them to be in the film adaptation of Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22. And in the end, he decided, uh, actually, Paul, no, we, we're going to drop your character. Off you go and we'll just keep Artie you know, working on the film. And that went for like about six months and there was some level of resentment. You know, Paul's well, but hang on, we've got an album to work on and you've gone and separated us. Uh, yeah. I, I, I truly don't know that, you know, that sort of separation, if the friendship was what it had previously been, you know, would be the, the straw that broke the camel's back to use that cliche, but they, they certainly blame him. I don't think that either of them expected the, the filming of Catch-22 to take that long. Right. Actually, it was eight months. Oh, wow. And, and when you watch the film, you know, it's a, it's a great movie. Um, but Art, Art's character, is, he's barely in it. But we have a war to win. Oh, but uh, America will lose the war. Italy yeah. will win it. America is the strongest nation on Earth. American fighting man is the best trained, the best equipped. The best fed. Exactly. Italy, on the other hand, is one of the weakest nations on earth. And the Italian fighting man is hardly equipped at all. And it's why my country is doing so well, while your country is doing so poorly. Like, he, I mean, he's in, he's in maybe five or six scenes. So that they were down in Mexico and probably hard to get away. Everyone was probably just hanging around waiting for their scene to come up. And for such a small, relatively small role, for him to be pulled away from, you know, for them, from their partnership at the height of their career, right. it's pretty, pretty devastating. I, I could see, I could see Paul being very upset by it and for good reason. Mm. I mean, uh, to this day, I've never actually watched the film. It's one of my favorite books, but oh, the, it, it always, the book, stri- is, the book is incredible and I love the film. Uh, I Okay, well, I'll, I'll take that as high high praise, high recommendation. I, but I always sort of thought that the book was virtually unfilmable. Yeah, well, don't don't expect it to be just like the book. It's not possible to be mm. just like that. Yeah. But but as its own entity, it's actually really good. Okay, highly. Recommend. So 
before we sort of move on to talking about the albums under discussion, just wanted to spend you know, another few minutes talking about Paul Simon and his development. We actually did do an episode of All Time Top 10 talking about our favorite wordsmiths. And I think I might have included Paul Simon in one of my songs there. And he certainly is one of the great lyricists of the rock and roll era. I don't know whether he qualifies as a poet or anything like that, because certainly poetry and uh, lyric writing are two different things. But he, uh, he does strike me as being a great short story writer in the guise of a songwriter or maybe a short filmmaker. Right. And I'm not talking about his height. I just mean as in short films. <laughs> uh, but, um, look, you know, Paul seems to have been uh, like a, a fully developed lyricist right from the get-go. I mean, you wouldn't even necessarily say that about you know, early Lennon and McCartney. And you go and compare... Uh, you know, the development of Love Me Do to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. There was a long way that they went. But some of those early Paul Simon songs really show, well, at least once they called themselves Simon and Garfunkel, not, you know, maybe not the Tom and Jerry days, but those early Paul Simon songs, they showed the confidence of a craftsman who'd been, I don't know, I guess thinking for a long while as to what he wanted to say and how to say it. And the Sounds of Silence on the first Simon and Garfunkel album, it's an astonishing first album song. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence you know, the visual imagery he paints for someone in his early 20s. Just, it blows me away. You get, you know, lyrics like, and the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. Try telling me that that's no longer relevant. That's a song for the ages. And, Absolutely. And this is from a guy in his early 20s on his first, well, yeah, on his first recording. When, okay, we're not going to count the Tom and Jerry stuff. But. Um, well, I think uh, a lot of it is is the influence, too, because the Beatles... You know, they they came up. Their early material was recorded before Dylan really took off, mm-hmm. and maybe a year or two into Dylan's you know ascendance is when Simon and Garfunkel started recording. So I think Paul had a leg up as far as like where he could go with his music by by Dylan's example. Sure. No. Yeah. That makes that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. <laughs> That's a theory. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I think I might have told you this while we we're doing the Wordsmiths episode that there was a a book that George Martin had put together I think in the 70s called Making Music and he got a lot of people in the music industry both you know musicians and engineers and uh, financial people all talking about from the 1970s perspective about what you know what was the high tech of the day or songwriting techniques or, or approach to practice on an instrument and Paul Simon had gone and written a chapter on how he approaches songwriting and I'd be very interested to know whether he'd taken this approach in the early 60s or when Simon and Garfunkel were thing or if indeed he approaches it the same way nowadays but what he said at the time was that he treated songwriting as a nine to five brill building sort of thing he'd be up first thing in the morning he had a room in the house where he just went in he wasn't disturbed he went and wrote hundreds of words down as uh, mental images and he'd uh, see he'd 
shake them around like a jigsaw puzzle and you know he'd agonize over single words and it would take months to get one word done there was none of this oh i just there was a song floating in the air and i grabbed for it and it came to me and i wrote it down and that was it all done in 10 minutes for him it was a real profession yeah you hear lots of stories about songwriters saying like oh i wrote that song in five minutes i don't think i don't think paul has a single song like that Mm. Uh, and uh getting back to comparing his work to the beatles um, you also have to remember that the Beatles put out, what is it, 13 studio albums? That's true. You know, And Paul, in the 60s, because Bridge Over Troubled Water came out in, in 1970, in the 60s, he only really put out three and a half albums because half of Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. was covers. Mm. So, I mean, his output is, is way, way smaller. It's like maybe 50 songs as opposed to like 300 from the Beatles. So, I mean, he definitely was very meticulous about it. And I read some of that talking about the, the, the making of these albums, like bookends took like two years to make. Yes. So yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. 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 And every, you can tell every note, every word, everything is, is painstakingly crafted. Mm, yeah. You know, he has certainly, I don't know. I like to use the word developed because that implies that he came from a limited place to a more advanced place, but he certainly went off in different directions. And uh, you know, like the, so some of the songs, some of the Simon and Garfunkel songs, they're more lyrically, more straight ahead in their approach with what he has to say. And then you, you know, by the time you get to his, uh, his resurgence in the mid eighties with Graceland and you get some of the songs in there, you're thinking, hang on, what's he saying? He's going as, you know, is he being as deliberately obtuse as say Dylan was in the blonde on blonde period or something like that? Yeah. Having said that, he still always has loved setting a mood and not necessarily telling a story here's a beginning middle and an end like something like say hurricane by bob dylan but there is something of a, a slice of life in a, a lot of his songwriting and there are examples over these two albums which we'll get to and that's why i sort of say that they'd make good short films rather than a long narrative it's just like here's five minutes of something like that and you get a feel for the characters musical development i think is also important in especially insofar as bridge over troubled water because more so than anything else that simon and garfunkel did before this album really points to other avenues that paul simon was going to do in his solo career so you know, el condo pasa was you know, an inspiration because i believe that was actually a pre-recorded track that he used with los incas uh, approval to just put new lyrics over but then they went and re-recorded they recorded duncan with him later on yeah there's definitely a lot of that worldly influence like music from all over the world yeah that's like peruvian music yep El Carasa. you get why don't you write me which is sort of a foray into you know ska and, and reggae and you know uh, cecilia has got sort of a tribal thing going um yeah he was definitely looking forward and totally at the time just expanding his musical palette like crazy absolutely uh he, he sort of you know gone into uh, latin jazz and, and well actually there was that album the cape man songs from the cape man which has a mixture of doo-wop so he's exploring his past and and some latin jazz on there which is absolutely amazing there's the electronic sounds that he had on the surprises album recorded with brian eno and it, it just sort of seems that uh you know there's very few inverted commas conventional pop albums in his canon it flirted with uh, new orleans sounds i think on uh, there goes Ramen simon yeah, I think uh, on my show, you know, it's a different topic every week. It's a different top ten list, a different guest. And you've been on the show many times. 
Uh, one thing we have not done yet is top 10 versatile artists. Oh, wow. That'd be a great topic. I think uh, I think Paul is going to be right near the top along with people like David Bowie and, and, and uh, Elvis Costello and Paul McCartney. For 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're no brainers, but oh, God, I, I, I yeah, imagine you'll have a lot of fun sort of digging deep to sort of think i wonder else so you'd have um you'd have a double whammy there because you'd have to sort of like look up enough artists who've had that longevity as as well as that diversity but uh, i guess that's that's why people like that have survived that long because they're not making the same album that they made in the start i mean i guess you know there are some bands who've managed to make that work for them yeah but and, and when in paul's case you can see that he's not changing to you know adapt with the times and try to keep up with what's current and cool or whatever he's changing out of pure love for whatever kind of music he's into at that time and right. you know he's always groundbreaking when he does it you know he's not following a trend he's creating the trends and yet despite all that do you think that there's still some level of perception uh, amongst well maybe not the die hard fans but amongst so the general population who you know 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 the name and will know some of the material that there's still some perception of him as a folky yeah that's uh that's not even scratching the surface of what he does. <laughs> that's it's right. Where he got his musical beginnings, you know, as a, as a successful artist for mm. sure. But I mean, his stuff. I mean, immediately with even with Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Time, it was they were, they were expanding their musical palette for sure. And I mean, I think you know he said that you know he and Artie grew up listening to you know, to rock and roll, which is the same thing, I guess, for you know for Bob Dylan. I think he said first thing he did was learn piano to be like uh, Little Richard and. Right. Uh, uh, you know, but people sort of think you know, because of those first four albums that you know, oh, wow, you know, Bob Dylan, the folk artist. But he said, well, no, that was that was what was popular at the time. And I thought, well, that's the uh, area I wanted to go in. And but for some reason, there's still this uh, perception uh, that uh, at least that's what I seem to think. You know, what I'd hear people sort of think of him. Oh, yeah, Bob Dylan. The, uh, no, sorry, well, Bob Dylan as well. But yeah, Paul Simon, the the folk singer. And yeah, there's so much diversity there that shows you know completely the otherwise. Have you had a listen yet to uh, his album of this year? I heard one or two songs, and uh, I liked it. What I heard was really funny. I forget the name of the song, um, but he's still got he's still got that uh, acerbic wit, sort of sarcastic humor. <laughs> Man. Uh, I think I might have spoken to you a few weeks ago and said I've yet to hear the album in its entirety, but I did hear some uh, bits and pieces on the Soda Jerker podcast of this year where they got to interview Paul exclusively about that album, about his new album of 2016. So uh, something I need to follow up with. All right, what we'll do now is uh, we'll go to another quick break and then Ben and I will be discussing uh, the actual albums that we're here for, Bookends and Bridge Over Troubled Water. You know, go have yourself a beer, have yourself a cup of tea, uh, or maybe listen to the ads. I don't care. Uh, we'll still be here and then we'll be talking some more Simon and Garfunkel with you after this break. We'll be back shortly. Simon and Garfunkel, greatest hits. Fourteen classic hits from music's greatest duo. Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits. Out now. When you're weary, feel sad. And we're back from break. Morris over here. 
Ben over there, and we're talking Simon and Garfunkel, and in particular their albums, Bookends, which is their fourth studio album, and Bridge Over Troubled Waters, their fifth and final studio albums. So we'll focus on each record in its own right as we go along, but my question to you, Ben, is do you see, and I used this word before, do you see a development in their style between these two albums or just a different direction? that they went in. Yeah, well, it's, of course, there's a there's a development because it's more expansive. Mm-hmm. Book, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water is more expansive musically than bookends. But I think as far as how mature they both are, how strong of an album they both are, I, I have a definite favorite album or mm-hmm. a definite favorite song of all time. I don't have a definite favorite album even from these two guys. I can't, I can never decide which of these two is better. I think uh, as far as throwaway tracks, I think Bookends has one, and I think Bridge Over Troubled Water has maybe two or three. Okay. So, but it, but Bridge has my favorite song of all time. So, <laughs> but they're they're both equally as impressive. You know, there's there's really it's not like two different levels. Yeah, you know? yeah sure. I, I mean, for me, I think Bookends may have just a slight edge for me in terms of songs that I prefer. You know, there's not that much in it because you know they're both albums that are hot, you know really very strong in my heart. But you know, I guess as you say, you know, Bridge is a landmark in terms of you know, ambition and, and production. Yeah, I, I I read I don't I can't I find it hard to believe this is true, but I read somewhere that uh, Bridge was the best selling album in America in 1970, 1971, and nineteen seventy two. Amazing. It seemed right, but <laughs> maybe it was. I mean, it was it was gigantic. I think it swept the Grammys and. I've got some stats here, and I know that you're a big fan of stats. The album was released on uh, the 26th of January in 1970. Uh, the first single, The Boxer, was released on the 21st of March 1969. So it was a rather long gestation period, I guess, before uh, the album saw the light of day. Bridge well, as a single was released on the 9th of November. So, wow, only um, what would we be up to? We'd be up to the uh, 47th anniversary. The album sold more than 25 million copies domestically and internationally, and it went eight times platinum in the US. It was 10 weeks at number one in the Billboard charts and 33 weeks at number one in England. <laughs> this, is, this is all from Wikipedia, folks. If, if uh, this is right. actually, I know some of this is from the liner notes in the, uh, uh, I think, the 40th anniversary edition of the CD. How many weeks? Number one in, in the UK? 33. Jeez. Okay, I, maybe that is true. Then maybe it is the <laughs> biggest selling album of three years in a row. Uh, look, to, to be honest, I, it didn't say whether it was consecutive. It could have been, you know, 15 weeks and then went down for a week and then came back the rest of its period pretty tough to argue with 25 million copies sold though yeah very hard can't argue with success the grammys it did win album of the year record of the year and song of the year i've never sort of quite worked out what record of the year and album of the year what the difference is but there you go uh, and it was yeah. also the best engineered recording uh, as far as the grammys was concerned by roy Haley. Um, yeah and who uh, who did a magnificent job let's talk a little bit about the context of the times because I think it's important to sort of talk about the period that this album came out into. And there was program, which I actually had seen a few years back, but they also put like a, a DVD in the 40th anniversary edition of the album, which is why I picked it up. They had, um, well, they had a documentary, like a retrospective documentary about the, the release of um, Bridge Over Trouble Water. But there was also a special that was released, I think, on CBS television called Songs of America. 
And I'm wondering if at the time, you know, the major sponsors of the TV show were thinking that it was just going to be a nice puff piece with, you know, the big pop artists of the day, Simon and Garfunkel, talking about their latest album. And waving the flag. Right, right. But it, it was anything like that. So that the program sort of focused on the big political turmoil of the day. So, you know, the, there was stuff in there relating to Martin Luther King and the JFK assassinations and big marches on Washington and you know, other political material that was, you know, very apropos to the times. I think this is partly Charles Grodin's uh, vision who, who directed that special. And, you know, they think it might have been, was it the Bell Telephone Company had said, we'd like to suggest that you make some changes. And, um, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Charles Graydon said, no, go take a hike. And they said, all right, we will. But fortunately, other more open-minded uh, sponsors said, no, we believe in your vision. Yep, sure, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get this sponsored so you can show this on television. It's just sort of amazing to think that, you know, here in 2016, I'm wondering who's today's Simon and Garfunkel? Who's going to produce a show like that? And have you actually seen it? No, I just read about it actually for the first time. I didn't even know about it. It's well worth your time. It's, you know, as I said, no puff piece. Is it on YouTube or? I think you, well, yeah, I think like in the purchased section. So I don't think it's like just look it up and, and watch it as it is, but I think you can buy it on YouTube. Not 100% sure, but I've got my, as I said, I've got my copy on the DVD. If you can still get yourself a copy of the, uh, the CD. Uh, with the bonus DVD. As I said, there's also a, a bonus making of the album. So they'd go back and speak to both of them and to other big players in a day. So it's like two hours worth of mm. material in that DVD. It's absolutely well worth your time. It's really well put together. Well, I'm going to make it my mission to check that out. Nice, nice. It, it's interesting, though, that they brought that politics and they brought that vision of the time into more into that TV show because musically, even though they had a lot of things to say about society in fairly songwritery sort of way, but there's nothing in there that's overtly political like, say, early Dylan was. They just want to tell their stories of ordinary people. It's more like, okay, politics is going on in the background and a society that is maybe not caring enough about people who would, and I know you love the expression, doing it tough, that it tends to sort of more focus on the individual stories of people. And so that's actually a, a good comparison between, say, the, the slice of life stories that I was mentioning on both of these albums. So you've got America on bookends and The Boxer on Bridge Over Troubled Water. So in, in the song America, it's, you know, it's a, a bus journey that, you know, Paul Simon's taking with Kathy and, this is not a hand on your heart, my country do or die, I love America. It's just about a guy who's thinking, well, what is out there? What is in my country? I don't know. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. I've got some real estate here in my bag. So we bought a pack of cigarettes and this
counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all gone to look for America. Everyone's looking for their peace of mind. Everyone's looking to see what is the nature of the country that we are living in. We're all in turmoil. There's strife in Vietnam. We got the, the older generation who don't understand the younger generation, but he's telling it in a very quiet sort of way. At least that's my interpretation of how that song, how America goes. And then, um, you know, the boxer once again about. Another person who's doing it tough, who's having a hard existence in an uncaring, unfeeling environment, and that's more the result of the politics of the time rather than commenting directly on the politics of the time. Yeah, and save the life of my child is another one that could fall into that category. Like、uh, people just trying to deal with their surroundings, and、uh, yeah, it's not overtly political, but there's little. Little hints of it. I think the closest thing Simon and Garfunkel ever got to politics was Silent Night. Dr. Martin Luther King says he does not intend to cancel plans for an open housing march Sunday into the Chicago suburb of Cicero. Cook County Sheriff Richard Ogilvie asked King to call off the march, and the police in Cicero said they would ask the National Guard be called out if it is held. King now in Atlanta, Georgia, plans to return to Chicago Tuesday. In Chicago, Richard Speck, accused murderer of nine student nurses, was brought before a grand jury today for indictment. The nurses were found stabbed and strangled in their Chicago apartment. That wasn't making an, a, a definite statement about how they felt. It was just sort of observing. Love to imagine what. If, if you'd played that album for the first time back in 1967, I think it was. You know, after after listening to all these great sort of personal pop songs,、um, what what you'd be thinking? You'd think, hang on, did I just hear what I thought I heard? That this contrast of you know, Silent Night being sung so so gently and sweetly with、uh, the, the hard news events of the day.、Uh, I imagine it was pretty confronting for the day. Yeah, that's a powerful track, but that's on a different album. We're not talking about that album. No, but I guess really their whole career is full of these sorts of songs, so it's all relevant to come back to. I mean, I did want to actually sort of make one more point. I forgot to mention it before. Thinking about the Sounds of Silence album, I mean, you have songs on there. You have a couple of songs about suicide. You have songs rallying against organized religion. You have songs about depression, and even the happy-sounding songs melodically are not really that happy. You know, leaves that are green and and Kathy's song. They're they're not really sort of happy songs. They they sound sweet, but they're not. And so they're fairly dark for guys who sang so sweetly. They're, they're rather dark material, and it sort of held them in good stead for where they were going. I love the、uh, the contrast. Mm. Really, you know, there's really nothing else like it in pop music.、Yeah. You know, people that can produce music that's so beautiful and yet subject matter that's so dark.、Mm. You know? I'm going to be one of those conspiracy theorists. You want to hear what my conspiracy theory has been? All right. All right. So you've already gone and mentioned that、uh, by the time they got to bridge over troubled water, they were starting to fall apart. You know, probably you know things in their own career as well as the Catch 22 situation. And I think it sort of manifested itself on the front album cover. Now there's been lots of talk about Abbey Road, and you know Paul is dead, and the evidence is because he's wearing no shoes, and it's a sign of mourning in Sicily, and and John is the funeral director, and the other two are pallbearers, etc., etc. It makes perfect sense that he's dead because he's in the photo. Absolutely, it works for me. <laughs> Uh, but、uh, on this album, I'm wondering if you look at every other album cover, you see the two of them side by side. And、right. on this one, you see on the front cover, it's Paul 
in front of Artie with half of Artie's face cut. And then on the back cover, you see Paul walking behind a, a fairly confident, striding Artie. Of course, yeah. I could be spratting shit and it could all be coincidental, but I, I just sort of wonder in, in light of what came up. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, like the zombies in Odyssey and Oracle, they knew while they were recording this that this was their last hurrah. And there, there's song material on this album that, uh, is, that is the two of them, or, or more rather, you know, because of Paul's pen, Paul saying farewell to, uh, to Artie. But by the time they get to, uh, Song for the Asking, they've sort of reconciled it. So in a way, everyone sort of says that bookends is, has, you know, side one is like a, not a rock opera, but a, a concept half album. But I also argue that Bridge Over Troubled Water is a concept album in parts, just not yeah. the songs consecutively. Well, more more evidence that they were drifting apart is the fact that on Bridge Over Troubled Water, there's what maybe out of the eleven tracks, I think there's like three where they sing in harmony the whole time. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking about that. There's uh, either songs where it's just one or the other, or maybe you know one comes in for only a couple of lines. But yes, absolutely. This is like uh, their their Beatles White Album in a way. They're um, sort of yeah. together but separate. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that was like their signature sound for years and years. And suddenly, you know, here they are. Basically, it's like a, a dual solo album. <laughs> exception of like Cecilia, Keep This Customer Satisfied and like The Boxer. Most of the, maybe Baby Driver too, I guess. Sure. The whole rest of it is just like, here's a song that Paul's going to sing. Here's a song that Art's going to sing. You know, I, I never would count that as a detriment to the album. I think it's really smart. Mm, no, for sure. And almost like towards the end of the album, the penultimate song in the album, is uh, Bye Bye Love. So it's it's almost like, you know, and it had to be that song. It's them saying goodbye to each other. It's them saying goodbye to their audience. Uh, and it's sort of, it, it's I guess like their um, their get back uh, or their um, one after nine oh nine, if you want. I, I got I gotta say, just like one after nine oh nine, I feel like that's kind of a throwaway track. It, it, look, it, it's sort of it, in a way it it doesn't belong because it's so contrastingly different and it's a live cut and it almost seems like a throwaway. But if we're going to go on this conspiracy theory that it's their farewell to each other, it is perfect. It's saying, all right, and by the way, this is where it all started. So it, I see what you say, but it, in another way, it also makes complete sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense in, in the concept, but it's also a song that I would skip every time it comes on. <laughs> okay. I, I just the correct the audience is too loud and it's too it's not sophisticated enough for what what else is on that record. It's just I don't know. I feel like they outgrew it, and I see why they did it, but I, I still can move on to other stuff. Right. Like I I skip to song for the asking every time. <laughs> Um, the song asking is, is absolutely heart-wrenching. It's just beautiful. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And all the more so when you can see there's no art on it at all. So yep. um, it's, uh, hi folks, art has left the building. Yes, sir.
So let's talk a little bit about the title song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, which I'm sure you have no hesitation to do. Yes. It's, it's an amazing feat of production, even before we sort of get into talking about the lyric content or the structure of the music, but just what Roy Haley achieved in, in the sound on that. It's really amazing, especially, you know, for the time. And the instrumentation was recorded in, in LA by you know, the, the great members of the Wrecking Crew, you know, Hal Blaine, who's a hero to me, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Osborne, who apparently is playing two basses on the song. And is it is it Knetchel or Netchel? I'm not. I'm never quite sure. Larry Netchel. It's uh, Nectal. Nectal. There you go. He's playing that very distinctive gospel piano. And I, I read an article that said that it sort of reminded the the author of the article. It was like a cousin to Let It Be. And mm-hmm. I'd not thought about that, but I thought, yeah, it makes great sense. It sort of does. Uh, both, I guess, secular gospel songs, if um, if you want to put it that way. And it's so beautiful and understated in his in his piano playing. But I've also got to say, I'm a big fan. I, I prefer Larry's playing, but Paul Simon's regular piano player for uh, through the seventies through to uh, the eighties was uh, a fellow called Richard T. And mm. um, I love his playing when we're here in the concert in Central Park what he does there but he, he was he was a brilliant pianist but really what larry does and what roy haley does in the production there's something so beautiful it's, it's majestic but without being bombastic uh, that's what i love about it yeah and you know obviously it goes without saying that art completely nails it in every way i mean there's you couldn't possibly sing it better than that. I 100% agree with you. There's a ton of cover versions, and I'm sure that every karaoke around the world has had someone at some time sing, if not you know, everyone, that someone's doing a version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. And uh, you played on the all-time top 10 a few weeks ago, a version by Mary Clayton. And for mine, you know, Mary Clayton and Aretha are two of the few that get it right. Uh, because I'm, it's a gospel song. Right. Yep. Yeah, right. But it, it's it goes beyond the fact that it's gospel because there are there's people who understand gospel and there's people who think you just throw in a lot of tremolo. You throw in a lot of like uh, vocal gymnastics, like Christina Aguilera would right. be like, yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the worst versions I heard was uh, Lovelace Watkins. Don't know if you know him. Sort of a cabaret singer. Uh, I don't like his Tom Jones. I don't even like the Elvis Presley version. I don't. But what I think makes it work so much for art is because of the delicacy of his voice. He has even even by the end of the song where he's giving it his all, there's still something very fragile about his voice. It's not this deep bass boomy voice with as you say the vocal gymnastics it's it's a delicacy and and in a way i think the only other singer who up to the best of my knowledge has never covered it but i think could give it a, a, a red hot go is um lead singer of the zombies colin blunstone colin blunstone because i've often sort of thought that he has a delicacy in his voice that he's the closest thing i can think of to art garfunkel they're not the same but mm. But they could definitely go to the same school of thought. I'd love to see what he would do with this song. Yeah, but, but art sings like an angel. I mean, it's 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 angelic. That's the that's the best way I could describe it. Mm. You know, and it is a gospel song, so it would make sense that it has that sort of holy quality. And uh, th- thankfully, the song got heard by as many people as should have heard it. Like, it, I mean, it's become as big, as as powerful, and as well-loved, universally loved as it should be. Mm. And, well, I mean, a lot of thanks 
go to Art Garfunkel himself because the song was originally only two verses and it would never have built up to that crescendo. But Art said to Paul, hey, listen, you know, you, you've written yourself a really fine song, but I think it needs one more verse and you yeah, really need to build up to something big. And that first or that, that third verse when he says, uh, sing on, uh, sail on silver girl, that's actually a uh, message to his then Paul Simon's then wife, Peggy who uh, was upset at um, getting her first gray hairs. <laughs> and he wanted to just let her know that, like, it doesn't matter to me. I love you, you know. Sail on, silver girl. Sail on by. Your time has come to shine. All your dreams are on their way. See how they shine. If you need a friend, I'm sailing right behind. Wow. I, I, just just thinking about that is making, making the uh, hairs of my arms stand up. And I've heard this song tons of times, but just imagine if, Someone who you knew who was a really great songwriter wrote that for you. Okay. <laughs> no, I often think about that. Like, I'm not a songwriter at all, but my wife is. Yep. And I always have this vision of like, you know, a song like that. Like, hey, guess what? I secretly learned how to play piano, you know, while you did, while you, while you were at work or something. Like over the last year, I I took piano lessons, and you didn't know about it, and I wrote this song for you, and you know. And I just like how amazing that would be, you know. Absolutely. And and just for the people out there who don't know, uh, Ben's wife is the wonderful songwriter and singer Shannon Hurley. We'll uh, talk a bit about her at the end of the show as well. But um, uh, yeah, a, a wonderful songwriter. So if she'd written something for you, I, I, I would think that you'd be uh, absolutely oh, floored. She's, oh, she's written some songs for me, yes. <laughs> It's an unbelievable feeling, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Just the final thing that I remember hearing about this song was that uh, this is another point, I guess, in what should have been a, this triumphant moment for uh, for the two of them. And, you know, certainly considering how well-beloved it, it became, that that was another point of division between Paul and Artie where um, you know, he, he would sing this song on stage and, he was, and they were performing it before... It actually got released as a single, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, Artie brings it to the table with his amazing voice and the passion that he puts into it, and the fragility that he puts into it. And you know, Paul went and said something to the effect of, "Hang on, I'm waiting for the audience to call out author, author." They never did, you know. You just think, "Hang on, yeah, yeah, okay, he's singing it, but the beauty in that—that's mine." But this is sometimes where I wonder whether you know some. If not songwriting credit, but some credit needs to be given to the interpreter of the song because yes, it is Paul's magnificent song. But to be honest with you, I've like heard Paul do it as a solo artist, and so, it doesn't go anywhere near the heights. That no, um, it does. I have a wonderful live album called uh, Simon and Garfunkel Live 1969, and uh, <laughs> half the half the performances just the two of them as they would like to do. You know all on an acoustic and just their voices. And then they bring in actual like members of the wrecking crew mm. um, to do the second half of the show with them as a, like, you know, as a full band experience. And they do bridge over troubled water and Paul introduces it as a new song they're working on. Wow. Yeah, and the crowd is completely floored. Like they applaud for like three minutes straight after it. <laughs> and it's a wonderful performance as you can imagine. But I'm just, just thinking about what it would have been like to be there. Here's a song that no one's ever heard before. And it's that song. Oh my God. Hearing that for the first time. So if you want to hear that, it's it's a pretty remarkable moment. Um, it's that it's called Live 1969. So so that that only saw the light of day. I think like in the last three or four years, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was sort of a recent release. Mm. 
I'm ashamed to say, actually, I haven't sort of bought a copy of that yet, but just to hear the audience applauding for three minutes, I think that'd be worth the price alone. It just goes on and on. Like, they're just like losing their minds, you know? Mm. So, if Bridge Over Troubled Water is the big song on its album, I think, at least for me, America is in its way the centerpiece of uh, bookends. Toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in my raincoat. We smoked the last one an hour ago. So I looked at the scenery. She read her magazine And the moon rose over an open field Kathy, I'm lost, I said Though I knew she was sleeping I'm empty and aching And I don't know yeah, as far as far as like uh, commercially and one that's most beloved, I'd say it's Mrs. Robinson. But right. as far as like the emotional centerpiece, the 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 towering achievement of the of bookends is America for sure. And I mean, the thing that I like about it is, I mean, I've lots of things I like about it, but one thing in particular is that it's not, as I said earlier on, this is not hands on the heart. This is not a song for Americans, you know, to follow their beloved country here i am in a country on the other side of the world and that song still speaks to me because it's about a guy and about a nation in in reality trying to find its way uh in the country at that particular time and that's something that's really pretty universal but you know the, the author of the song happens to be an american so he's talking about his personal experience and his insight into that but it really for me is a song that i think works it couldn't work anywhere universal experiences yeah, absolutely. I found myself getting really annoyed though. There was a, there's a music forum online, not a Facebook group. It's a, just like a, an old fashioned music discussion forum. And someone had gone and written about this song. They obviously didn't get the lyric. Uh, they said that they thought it was the lamest set of lyrics. What the hell does it mean? The meaning of the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. I said, be careful. His bow tie is really a camera. They said, what the hell do those stupid lyrics mean? And I thought, you are obviously not a student of uh, great songwriting. I mean, I, I just love the playfulness. It's ordinary things happening on a bus trip. It puts you in there on the bus with them. One hundred percent puts you on their adventure with them. Yeah, that's that's really stupid to criticize that. I love that part of it. Mm. That's that's the the little details that make the make the song great. Which is why I say Paul Simon is like a an author. Yeah, that's that's the stuff that makes it universal and and for me uh, it grabs your your attention and put, puts you in that. Like I said, puts you in the scene with them. Mm. Oh, and then of course you got the wrecking crew doing an amazing job backing them up and got that the soaring quality to it. I would think that you in particular would be a big fan of uh, the dancing bass line in the in the bridge. It just it becomes this real melodic instrument. When he, uh, when he's singing uh laughing on the bus, playing games with the faces. Right, absolutely. Take particular yeah, take particular note of what the bass is doing there. It's basically soloing, but it's kind of yeah, it, it, it goes along with the lyrics in that playful tone, whatever it is. It's it's not just it's not just noodling. It's not uh, being show offy. It really complements 
the the melody what the other members of the wrecking crew are doing really so well and um i i guess for me the other the other thing that i like about it i wonder if this is metaphorical or am i trying to read too much onto it but the organ on the fading outro has this waltz like sound like we're riding on a carousel well that entire first side of bookends like we said is supposed to sort of a concept and like a, like a life cycle basically Right. But the bookends theme opens it, and it's just that little acoustic guitar, and it goes right into Save the Life of My Child, which is a, such a striking moment. That's a Moog, and it was actually played by Robert Moog himself. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I mean, you know, who knows when you read stuff online, whether it's 100% accurate, but this was <laughs> 1967 when it was recorded, so I think they were around at that point. The thing is, like, you listen to it now, and sort of that Moog sound at the beginning of the song, it does certainly sound very much of its time, but... It was very unique to a Simon and Garfunkel record, and I imagine if you weren't listening to a lot else of what was going on in rock and roll, if that was that more harmonious sound was your bag, then it probably would have sounded fairly shocking at the time. Yeah, I, I was in a band for a while called the Minor Canon, and we we had a lot of orchestral pieces to us. For a while, we had a French horn, and um, we always had like a trumpet and uh, a trombone and organ and piano and all this other stuff. And I was pushing hard for us to cover Save the Life of My Child. I thought we could do a really interesting version of it, but uh, I, it, didn't, it didn't happen. I, um, it was sort of like a sort of an indie rock kind of a band. And these guys sort of had that uh, perception of Simon and Garfunkel as like the 59th Street Bridge song and all this stuff. And it, I played it for them. They're like, wow, that's interesting. But uh, Simon and Garfunkel, well, we can't do it. I feel like Save the Life of My Child was probably shocking to a lot of people when it came out. And to people today, with their perceptions of Simon and Garfunkel, hearing that, would probably, if they took the time to just listen to what's going on there, it probably would be pretty mind-blowing as far as I'm concerned. No, I was just gonna say like, it's, it has parts that are like abrasive and a weird psychedelic flourish in the middle that's like has like backwards sounds and you hear a little bit of uh, "Hello Darkness, My Old Friend" in there. And right. Really inventive production. Mm. Yeah, I, I think abrasive is a great word. The word abrasive is a word you don't associate with those guys. No, absolutely. And so early on in the album, I mean, we've, all we've had thus far has been you know, the, the bookends theme, which is you know, sort of you know, reeling you in to think, okay, it's going to be the uh, the typical image of what I imagine you know, another the new Simon and Garfunkel album is going to sound like, and then... Bah, 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 <laughs> it comes on and it's it's hang on what did i buy the right record what has this been uh, right label wrong album no and then their distinctive harmonies come out yeah i love that record i, I love that song and uh overs is also very good too why don't we stop fooling ourselves the game is over 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 no good times, no bad. 
There's no times at all, just the New York Times. So we should probably say, so these songs are part of that life cycle. That's the the the, the concept half album. So starts off with the bookends theme, which is you know just a few seconds, but then you know, say the life of my child and anger. I mean, they're all separate stories. It's not like a common linked approach, but each one represents a different and not a not a cliched perspective on the life cycle. It's just doing a song that's talking about children or you know, say the life of my child. America is about youth, um, young, you know, maybe you know, late teens, early 20s, taking the time out from maybe university and going to discover their country and discovering uh, themselves. And Overs is, is an acoustic guitar piece, I guess, of the sort that you sort of more imagine that you, uh, what Simon and Garfunkel is the sort of thing that your bandmates or your ex-bandmates were probably thinking of. Yeah, I would say so. Um, Overs, I guess, was sort of uh, connected to America. It comes right after America. And it's basically like that adventure is over. Our relationship is over. It's, you know, our uh, youth is over. It's time to grow up. It's time to uh, become adults. And it's really depressing. It's a beautiful song, but it's really sad, too. Because, I mean, uh, you've been in, I'm sure we've, we've all been in those relationships where, and it is a breakup song, um, but you're like living with some person and you feel, you know, you've, always, you've had feelings for them, but they're sort of just kind of worn out and you pass them in the hall and you barely speak anymore. And I think we've, I think we've all been there. And yeah, it's, look, it's a strange solo because he spends the whole time sort of saying, you know, why don't we stop fooling ourselves? The game is over. No good times, no bad times, no times at all, just a New York time. So he's being very playful with lyrics there. It is about a couple sort of going their separate ways or, or wanting to say, look, you know, let's, let's stop eating like zombies at the dinner table. Let's, you know, stop pretending that we need to stay together. And yeah. yet by the end, there's a slight hint of optimism. Uh, but each time I try the thought of leaving you, I stop, I stop and think it over. And only like about three weeks ago, I watched for the umpteenth time. Certainly my favorite film of the noughties and one of my favorite films, period, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah, we just watched it recently too. Uh, this song sort of resonates with me in thinking about that film. Yeah, and like I said, we've all been there. I mean, it's sometimes you just have to face the facts, you know, and breakups are never easy and that's, a, that's part of growing up and that's part of that life cycle that that, that first side of the album goes through. And then... I want to skip over voices of old people because I feel like it's, <laughs> it's a total throwaway. It's like the worst thing they've ever done. Well, uh, they they haven't done anything. It's just you know Artie going into a, an old age home and recording people's conversation. But uh, you know, why did they do? Why did they even put that on the record? It's terrible. Because it was no, uh, 1967 and everyone was experimenting. And hey, yes. uh, wouldn't it be great if we went into an old person's home and uh, recorded their conversation? That'd be so different. We're doing our different thing for the time. And, and I, I can see the mentality that led to it. It wasn't necessarily the right thing, but I can no, sort of And the, ex the execution is, is crappy. It's just, it's just bad. <laughs> and that's the only throwaway track on bookends. It's, and it's, it's such a throwaway. It's ugh. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a, pro a problem if you have the record, but uh, not so much if you have the CD or your, yeah. or your um, electronic device of choice. Yeah, so then you skip right over to Old Friends, which is beautiful. Old Friends Old Friends 
Sat on their park bench like bookends. A newspaper blown through the grass falls on the round toes of the high shoes of the old friends. Old friends, winter companions, the old men. Lost in their overcoats, waiting. And that's the one that, along with the bookend theme, it wraps up uh, side one. And it's, I, I was thinking about the other day that line um, Can you imagine us years from today sharing a park bench quietly? How terribly strange to be 70. Oh, God. They're, they're, they're both older their, than 70. They're both in their 70s now. Yeah. I wonder, I, I bet neither of them have shared a park bench in Central Park, probably be mobbed. I wish they would. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's, it's interesting because the only other song that I can think of, and I'm, uh, there's bound to be more, but the only other song that I can think of from the perspective of a young man thinking about what it must be like to be um, old is uh, Neil Young's Old Man. Uh, right. I'm, I'm wondering, is he doing that song anymore? Uh, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good question because he ain't 24 no more. <laughs> no, sir, he is not. Yeah, uh, but no, no, old friends is absolutely gorgeous. As um, I, I love the tasteful string arrangements, and I love you know, there's it, that swirling thing that, that, that I'm not sure if it's a quartet or it's a little bit larger. But when they go and repeat the theme that Simon and Garfunkel are actually singing, uh, yeah. it, it goes into this goes into this very dramatic swirl. Before. That's more than a quartet, whatever it is. Yeah, that do do that little hook there. But, but before before it gets to that, goes. Yeah, so it's really cinematic. I love that. Very much, very much, absolutely. Yeah. So then, the, um, getting into the second half of bookends, these are all just one-off singles and songs that were submitted for the graduate theme and all that. That uh, you know, it's just a collection of songs basically, but they all were all previously released. I was just going to say one more thing though: that even on the second side, which is right, okay, we got half a concept, a little bit like the Who Sell Out. I think that uh, Hazy Shade of Winter would have uh, been interesting to see where that would have fitted in on the first side because that's also a song about you know counting the end of your days. As it, as yeah, it maybe they should have um, taken out Voices of Old People and put Hazy <laughs> <laughs> That would have been better served uh, as part of the song cycle from the first one. But that song is like was written in 1965. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Yeah, and, and Bookends didn't come out until 68. That's, a, that's an old song of, of Paul's that was actually a single released in 66. Well, you know what? In, in a way, I mean, it sort of fits uh, the bill more for that because you sort of listen to that and think, well, that song might have worked well on an album like Sounds of Silence. It, it has such a great groove. It, it, it's just pure pop. Uh, yeah. Hazy Shade of Winter also has one of the best covers of all time done by the Bangles. Yeah. 
it's not like they do anything radically different with it, but they just sort of amplify it a bit. They um, they give it a little bit more oomph. Nothing nothing wrong with the power on the first one, but they uh, make it a little bit more palatable power-wise for uh, for the audience of the 80s. Yeah, and then the rest of the tracks I feel are, are all very good. Some people don't like faking it. I think it's pretty good. Pretty right. good songs like you know Punky's Dilemma. Wish I was a Kellogg's cornflake floating in my bowl, taking movies, relaxed in a while, living in style, talking to a raisin occasionally plays LA. Yeah, it, it, it's cute. In fact, you know what? I, I sort of tend to see Punky's Dilemma as being like a great monkey song. You know, it's, given that a lot of people wrote for them, I'm surprised that uh, Paul didn't say, "Here, you can have this." Um, it, it sounds like it, it sounds like the sort of thing I imagine Mickey Dolenz uh, would have um, would have had some. I was going to say Davy Jones could sing that one. Yeah, yeah. Or, or okay, yeah. I guess so. I guess so. It would have worked well in head. I think. As yeah, well. definitely. But uh, that one was actually along with At the Zoo um, and the sort of the skeleton of Mrs. Robinson. Those were submitted to uh, Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Mm. And uh, only Mrs. Robinson made it. redoing Mrs. Robinson, fleshing it out with full-on lyrics and stuff, because I guess in the, uh, in the movie version, you, you just hear a lot of do-do-do-do-do's. Right, right. It wasn't a complete song, um, but the completed song is amazing. It, it is. I mean, I'm going to ask you, lemon heads or not? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Now, I, I remember reading someone um, put up a post, I think, in Love That Album the other week, saying that they could take or leave the lemon heads version but uh no i, I really really love it it also it works so well in the the graduate parody towards the end of wayne's world too that's <laughs> right <laughs> i think the simpsons did that too oh really oh, i haven't seen that did they did yeah. they do a, a graduate parody as well they did yeah with grandpa and uh he was in love with uh marge's mom or something like oh, that oh that's right yes 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 i've forgotten about mrs that. boobier he's like <laughs> that's right oh yes now i'm done coming back to me yes absolutely he's banging on the window yeah it's just an iconic track um when i was in college i went to school for tv and video production and uh, one of our projects was to put together like a, a collage set to music like a music video where you're um filming uh stills and but you're, you're recording it in real time so i i had a whole bunch of images iconic images of the 60s crazy things that happened in the 60s and i had two cameras and um i had mrs robinson playing and it would just cut from one to the other and i had people like switching the photos in between and stuff sort of trying to time it out to uh with the music it didn't turn out it didn't turn out great but that was <laughs> So not not available for me to watch on YouTube. No, okay. <laughs> but along with the uh, you know images of JFK and Martin Luther King and all these people, those iconic photos that you know so well, um, Mrs. Robinson is you know it's right up there as a, a 
icon of the 60s. We've already been speaking for a while now about some you know, the, the themes on bookends, you know, predominantly that concept side of, of age. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned earlier on in the show, we should probably expand on it a bit about the theme that seems to be running a lot through uh, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which seems to be Simon and Garfunkel's eventual separation. And you know, we've spoken a bit about how they put the blame on Mike Nichols. I mean, that surely would have been tough. But yeah, you just imagine if Bookends was a big record and, you know, they want to capitalize on that. But no, I got to go away for eight months. Wow. That's, that's tough. Sure. But I mean, you would have thought if anything, it would have strengthened them when they got back. And certainly artistically, they, they hit some really fantastic heights with this album. And yet, why would they sort of think, right? Well, they would have made a promise like, let's never be separated for that period of time again. Let's just keep doing it. The music is the thing. They either want us both or they want neither of us, but it broke them up. Yeah, that's not how how it ended up, unfortunately. No. Although, as we've seen over the years, you know, they've had their live reunions and even in 1975, and I remember this coming out. My like, Little Town. My Little Town. In my little town I never meant nothing I was just my father's son Saving my money Dreaming of glory Twitching like a finger On the trigger of a gun Leaving nothing but the dead Dying back in my little town Which I think holds its place in as good as anything in the Simon and Garfunkel catalogue through the 1960s. I adore that song. Yeah, too bad it's only one song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we really missed out on, on some, some great music. I can imagine, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel during the uh, singer-songwriter uh Laurel Canyon phase of the early 70s could have hmm. fit in. They could have done some stuff in that James Taylor vein that would have been, would have rivaled anything that, you know, those artists put out, Jim Croce and all that. Right. But of course, I could they were see- probably taking their cues from, from Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, oh yeah. But I mean, I'm just saying, like, if they were they were around during that time they would have been i mean you can just imagine what they could have done right and when you listen back to the concert in central park and they're even doing some of paul's solo material mm-hmm. and you, you hear their, their harmonies is like yep this is taylor written for the two of them so you know me and julio down by the schoolyard yeah and kodachrome things like that like they they added harmonies and it was just it felt like a glove yeah absolutely so, so I mean, at least we have paul's solo albums from that period which are great too mm, so. for sure uh, look i've lost count how many times i've played one trick pony or still crazy after all these years there goes Ron simon yep yeah, absolutely amazing um some new orleans influence and uh, mm-hmm. some r&b influence on that real a, a songwriter who was never satisfied with where, where he was he just went well what's the next thing what's the next thing i'm going to go do yeah so it's possible that you know he would have wanted to go in some directions that art didn't want to go to and they would have eventually separated anyway but sure sure one, one thing that we should definitely take into consideration when thinking about how short-lived their career really was is like how precious these albums are right this podcast we're talking about two albums this like basically half their career right here (laughs) right it is it is hope hope we're doing it justice listeners what do you think so yeah there's such few 
songs and, and, and recordings to, to fall back on. Like, this is it. Like, I've got their box set and it's like four discs, mm. you know? So it's, uh, you know, we should definitely cherish these, which, which I do. I'm sure you do. A hundred percent. So just coming back to this thing, talking about the, the themes on this album, which is, you know, seems to be predominantly about their separation. And, uh, the, you know, there are a couple of songs which, you know, make it all too obvious, you know, like The Only Living Boy in New York. song kills me yeah uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of just thinking about this over the last couple of days i wonder whether 10cc were a fan of this song because that harmony that we hear in you know the latter part of the song which i'm i'm not sure if it's like both of them or if it's just uh, garfunkel uh, overdubbing himself you know is both harmonies. it's it's both I, I read about it there were like eight tracks or something I, I read that it was like four Pauls and four arts wow and they weren't it sounds really angelic and like sweet but from what I read they were actually screaming those notes but they like were in like an echo chamber or something huh. so it came out sounding like that somehow you know the uh, 10 CC song I'm not in love oh yeah oh I see what you're, where you're going with that yeah definitely. I mean look there's no, not everything uh, is taken of as an influence and it may have just come to them but if, if i were to read somewhere where they said that they were big fans of this song i would not be in the least bit surprised yeah no i didn't even think of that you're, you're right i think uh, the, the, the correlation is there for sure in this song paul goes on to dress uh by name we'll call him as tom yeah. tom get your plane on time i know you've been eager to fly now uh, hey let your honesty shine let it shine on me the only living boy in new york yeah go off and make a damn film with Mike Nichols. I'll just be here by myself. <laughs> yeah, go on, turn off the light, leave me in the dark, I don't care. <laughs> I wonder I wonder how Art felt about singing some of these songs, because that one's more of a Paul one, but uh, So Long Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright. So long Frank Lloyd Wright I can't believe your song is gone so soon is one that art sings solo basically and it's about him um, how he wanted to be an architect mm. he was you know, going to school and it's sort of you know another goodbye song in fact that towards the end of the song you hear roy halley saying so long already artie you hear that oh wow um, no, I, 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 i'm gonna need to uh, get my ears the, the wax taken out of my ears need to listen to that again i don't think i've picked up you know how towards the end it started fading out and art sings that beautiful note where it has like a real vibrato to his voice he's like yes. yep. right around that time you hear someone in the background go so long already artie <laughs> Oh, I got it. What I read, it's Roy Halley that, that did that. Mm. So. 
And I think Art had to know that that song was,、uh, you know, about him, and it's a goodbye song. I wonder how he felt about it. So long, Frank Lloyd Wright. All of the nights we'd harmonize till dawn. So、yeah. long, so long. That maybe they'd already sort of、uh, gone and made it clear after this bye bye.、Uh, but yeah, I, I imagine it would have been fairly hard. I, I wonder,、uh, I wonder if like during their old friends reunion tour of the noughties, whether、um, that was the song that they did. I don't know. The other one, I, this never occurred to me, but an article I read suggested that Cecilia is another song about their relationship. Afternoon with Cecilia up in my bedroom. I got up to wash my face. When I come back to bed, someone's taken my place, and that someone would be Mike Nichols. Jubilation!、Yeah. She loves me again. He's finished his fucking film. He's come back to work on this album.、Uh, <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I've heard various things about Cecilia, and the one that sticks with me the most、um, is that、uh, Saint Cecilia is the patron saint of music. Okay. And,、um, the song is, in a sense, about writer's block. He's looking for inspiration, and Cecilia is breaking his heart. She's shaking his confidence. You know, and then like suddenly he thinks of a great song or a great lyric or, or a great hook. Jubilation! She loves me again. You know, that's that's what I've read. That 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 works too. As I said, I'm into the big conspiracy theories. They, they both. I'll go with both of them. No, I like I like I like your、uh, your theory. That makes sense too. Because yeah, like when, when, I'm sure when Art was finally done with the film, it was like total jubilation. So the boxer was also、um, one we should definitely talk about. Just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I was listening to an interview with with Hal Blaine on a drummer's podcast, and in there, and I come to think of it as well, in the documentary that's on the bonus DVD with the 40th anniversary edition of the album,、mm-hmm. and he does talk about how he was playing in the echo chamber. <laughs> um, but that's yeah, just an amazing sound, and、uh, really, it's it's like nowadays when、uh, people go into a music studio and you've got electronic effects and you've got、uh, your your desk,、uh, you're full of all sorts of software that can do absolutely anything you want. And back in those days, what did they have? They had tape loops and imagination. I remember reading um reading something about how Ian Pace of Deep Purple, you know, was recording all of、uh, Machine Head in the corridor. You know, all the rest of the band were in the studio, and he was to get his sound. He was playing, I think, in the corridor outside the studio. So 
just all these different things but you know Hal Blaine yeah playing in was it I can't remember, was it not an echo chamber was it like a the, the elevator shaft or something mm, to get that big that that sound oh. and, and that. was it the same thing for Bridge Over Troubled Water as well probably yeah because it has that sort of feel at the end the boxer was a, a single that came out way before the album and actually was recorded like a full year before the rest of the album right like right. before Catch 22 and all that and um, so that was like a very well-known song for like a year and a half before the album came out. And another, much like Mrs. Robinson, just another iconic track from the era. One that's, you know, is revered and rightfully so for its lyrics. It's such a powerful song. I mean, when you, when you, if you were to do the arithmetic and sort of like add up how many songs from both of these albums would be well known enough to people who aren't even necessarily counting themselves as Simon and Garfunkel fans. There are there are you know a few deep cuts, but not that many. Most of these songs have been done to death on radio or really very heavily into the public consciousness. And and the Boxer certainly is one of those. Yeah, a couple. There are a couple throwaways on the album. I will throw out um, Baby Driver. <laughs> it's kind of a... Th- yeah, look, I see where you're coming from. It's not as it's- great as, as what else is there, but I sort of like it. If, if for no other reason, uh, because Baby Driver and Keep the Customer Satisfied, uh, you know, both pointing to their love of soul music. I mean, it's... Yeah, well, me- musically, they're they're really fun. Like, they're, but, they're, but they're so light. And they're... I mean, I guess Keep the Customer Satisfied is not light. It's, it doesn't have a lot of ton of substance to it. It's more like, you know, woe is me, my life on the road. Gee, but it's great to be back home Home is where I want to be I've been on the road so long, my friend And if you came along, I know you couldn't disagree It's the same old story, yeah Everywhere I go, I get slandered But, you know, look, keep, keep the customer satisfied. I put it in that line of great rock and roll songs about life on the road. I mean, you know, probably more people say I'd take It's a Long Way to the Top over uh, Keep the Customer Satisfied. But I do understand, I do get what he's going for there. And, you know, the, um, it, it's got this wonderful, it sounds like a 12 string guitar that's placed perfectly in the mix. And the horn section comes in. The horn arrangement's fantastic. You got those great horn stabs. I've, uh, I've um, seen slander, pop, libel, pop, pop. I hear words I never heard in the Bible, pop, pop, pop. And it's just really and the, big, the big horn thing at the end. Yeah, that's a that's a rocker. Uh, I'll give you that one. I, I never said that. Keep the customer satisfied is a throwaway, although it sort of is. But I think maybe. <laughs> Uh, right. it's fun though and then why don't you write me is, is very lighthearted and yeah sure but even even why don't you write me is sort of like a, a start for um, what was to come later on with uh, mother and child reunion that was his you know flirtation with with uh, reggae and ska music and you know and obviously a you know, bridge over troubled water and it's with its gospel theme sort of points its way to love me like a rock even though musically very different but at least sort of wanting to approach maybe a, a secular approach to spirituality and you know we've already gone and said you know, El Condo Passa was uh, saying well hang on I want to explore this further you know with Duncan. In that way it's uh, a sort of a transition transition record to right. uh, pointing towards the future for, for Paul Simon's solo stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. And we've not really mentioned much about where Art Garfunkel went solo to be honest with you I've not really heard 
all that much. I've got a, a best of uh, Garfunkel, and I'm I'm sort of happy with that. And there's certainly some great songs on it. I mean, he's not a songwriter, but he's a wonderful interpreter. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's not a songwriter. Uh, look, I remember hearing. I think uh, from from his album Breakaway, which is, in itself is a, is a great song, but there's uh, his interpretation of an old sort of doo-wop song, I Only Have Eyes For You. Are the stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright I only have That just tears me apart. It, once again, it's because of that voice, uh, that yep. breathy, delicate, I'm going to hit the heights and I'm not going to break into a sweat. So um, yeah, that's, that's the thing. I, I, I want to put put this out there. P- people like to sort of scoff at Art Garfunkel um, and liken him to John Oates or Andrew Ridgely as like the second banana that didn't do anything. Right. I don't know exactly what John Oates does <laughs> in... in uh, Hollow Notes because he didn't write anything and he maybe well, sings. He, he, he did. What was um? How does it feel to be back? That's a John Oates song. Okay, well he didn't write any of their major hits and okay, right, you know, okay. he, he plays a little guitar, sings some harmonies. Andrew Ridgely, I don't know what he did in, in Wham, really, but like it's always like those three: Garfunkel, Oates, and Ridgely as like the the. It's a joke. Here's the second banana <laughs> gang. But Art was so much more talented. What, I mean, that voice, just the voice alone. I mean, I guess that's, that's, that's what his, that's his calling card is his voice. And it, that's, that's not to sort of decry anything about Paul Simon's voice. I love Paul Simon's voice, but it is not the voice of a... Uh... Not the voice of an angel. No, right, exactly. <laughs> Which Art Garfunkel definitely has. So he, he just brought something different to the table. It looks like, you know, people, the, the diehard music fans are probably going to place a lot more value in songwriting over performance. And they're two different beasts. You know, if you don't, if you, you might have a great song, but without a great interpreter, it's just something on a paper. And if you, but if you have, you have a great voice, but you don't have the talent of someone who's written magnificent words and a melody to, a melody to die for, then... You know, Some of the greatest songs of all time. Yeah, so really, the, the two of them complemented each other so well, and I, I don't think that that's been sort of emphasized enough. And, you know, because you, you, when you mentioned there the whole Garfunkel and Oates, you know, the, it, it's, it, you're right, it has been made a joke, and it, it shouldn't be. You know, he was every bit as important to that particular relationship. He just did something different. His role was different. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so, look, do you have any final thoughts? We've spoken for a while about these two fine albums. Do you have any uh, final thoughts you want to convey to the listeners? Great records also, Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time, and The Sounds of Silence. Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. definitely has some gems in there. Mm. It's uh, it's them figuring out who they are. There's a couple of songs that are just I can't take. Go tell it on the mountain and stuff like that. <laughs> See, I, I unfortunately I grew up on that sort of stuff because uh, my my sister who was into Simon and Garfunkel, she had different versions of that, not just the Simon and Garfunkel one. So the whole American folk revival was her bag. And I grew- yeah, some of it's a little hokey, mm-hmm. uh, but um, for amazing albums and one that's definitely worth your time they they didn't have much output but uh, what they did is it's as far as quality goes i don't know who can top it as far as like the ratio from you know quality to the quantity sure so yeah 
I'll, let, me, I'll, okay. let me put this to you. Going post Simon and Garfunkel, do you have a favorite Paul Simon album? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I love There Goes Rhyme and Simon. I love Still Crazy After All These Years. I love Graceland, of course. I mean, he, he's got so much more to, to explore, you know, beyond that. I don't really have a favorite. I think uh, like American Tune is probably my favorite solo song of his. Mm-hmm. And then Kodachrome and you know all the all the classics. Right. I'd say probably the album I've played the most would be One Trick Pony. That was, I guess, as close as he came to sort of conventional American pop in yeah. the last. But even the big hit from that. But even the big hit from that late in the evening has got a definite uh, Latin uh, feel. Latin feel, yeah, yeah. which is just an amazing track. Sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah, so now some great songs. Have have you seen the film? No, is that worth seeing? No. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote wrote the script and I have to say that as a as a uh, script writer, Paul Simon is a fantastic musician. (laughs) And it's, look, I see what he was getting at. We actually sort of discussed the film fairly early on in the love, uh, in the life of Love That Album. We, um, myself and my partner on that show discussed both the soundtrack and the film. And he was adamant that it was a great film. And he sort of said, why don't you like the film? Why don't you like the film? And he said, oh, no, no, that's, that's just part of its charm. That's just part of its beauty. And is it, is it better or worse than Neil Diamond's The Jazz Singer? Oh, look, you know what? That's on my, list of shame at the time it came out oh i don't think i need to see this I mean, look, i've never been a big neil diamond fan to begin with i've got to be honest so there was no temptation to go see it but one trick pony never sort of made it at least here to the cinemas it uh, i think i ended up seeing it on tv although actually I, I think i found like in a remainders bookshop there was a copy of the script with photos so i bought that so i knew the story before i even ever got around to seeing the film and Paul's acting is not very good. But if you want to sort of think about it as uh, a chance to see, you know, his absolutely amazing band, you know, Tony Levin on bass and Steve Gadd on <laughs> drums, oh, you know, just a, a killer band, uh, then, you know, just sort of consider it, well, you're watching a bunch of film clips with uh, some talking in between. And uh, Lou Reed acts in the film in a very un-Lou Reed-like part. Uh, I mean, look, okay. the, 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 story, look, the story is good. The story is, you know, he's a guy on the road who's seen as a one-trick pony. He had one big hit in the 60s, and he, his big hit in, from the 60s is a very Simon and Garfunkel type of thing. And now he's just a rock guy playing the clubs. Uh, I think it's, this film actually features a performance from the B-52s just as they were starting to come up. Oh, cool. Uh, well, I think as as an artifact, I have to check it out. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yes, okay. Just don't go in expecting uh, a, a really great film, but um, okay. it, it has it has something. It has some good points to make, and it's a great story. Uh, it would have been great if Paul had said, "I've got a fantastic story to tell. I'm going to get a real script writer yeah. to to flesh it out." But anyway, it is what it is. Okay. All right. So look. We, I think so. There you go. We've uh, gone and spoken all that we have to about uh, Simon and Garfunkel for this episode. Uh, so before we go to wrap up the episode, we'll go quickly now and uh, listen to what Eric Reanimator has to say for his album "My Love" segment. He's going to be talking about the Crash Test Dummies album from 1993. Album. Their album is uh, the album that came out that year is called "God Shuffled His Feet." Let's hear what he has to say, and then. Uh, ben and I will be back uh, shortly after that to wrap up this episode of Love That Album. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for 
an album I love with Eric Reanimator. All you love that album listeners out there, this is Eric. I am back with another album I love segment. This one focusing on the 1993 record by the alternative rock folk pop band, the Crash Test Dummies. The record's called God Shuffled His Feet, which is also the title of the song that we opened with. If you don't know that voice, that deep baritone voice, or don't remember the name, they had a one big hit with the song Mmm, 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 Mmm. And yes, I'm going to play some of it in a bit. What I like about this band has always been their verbal dexterity with the lyrics, the enchanting kind of melodic alternative rock that never gets too heavy, never gets too silly. I will say Brad Roberts' voice is definitely an acquired taste. And as much mocking as they took over their uh, big hit, if you actually listen to the lyrics of a lot of their songs they are actually saying something of value so let's check out some more of their tunes when I'm sampling from your bosom sometimes I suffer from distractions like why does God cause things like tornadoes and train wrecks Shots will make me get pretty sidetracked. Hope you'll understand. When I kneel before your bounty, sometimes I wonder if it could be really you have hopes that come from. Planets. 
his hair had turned from black into bright white. He said that it was from when the cars had smashed so hard. Once there was this girl who wouldn't go and change with the girls in the In re-listening to this record, I definitely hear, and dare I say it, a Bergman-esque existentialism going on with lots of wondering and questions about life and the universe and the existence of God and why God allows such things. The big hit, mm, 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 really does make sense if you look at it in the context of it. It's got a kind of cool hook, but it's also really about the plight of the outsider as a child. And for the alternative generation back in the 90s, which I was definitely part of, being that outsider really was something that was not explored in our pop culture of the 80s. We were always the weird kid on TV or the the punk kid who listened to funny music or whatever. And by the 90s, the the realization that so many of us were, I guess in the words of the Breakfast Club, you know, a a freak, a basket case, at least in some part. Or if you want to go... pump up the volume that definitely talked about the role of the outsider and parental and generational expectations and a lot of the alternative music of the 90s reflected that i think that we're sitting at a point now that's 25 years past the explosion that was pearl jam and nirvana and hole and soundgarden and all the rest of those bands there was this kind of tag that they were for whiners and people that were losers and People in the mainstream who had it pretty standard lives did not seem to understand at all the, the torment of being the outsider in the highly conformist 1980s. Anyway, let's get back to some of the music. Um, I'm going to play out just bits of two more songs. I think this is a good album. I think it worth, it's worth rediscovering along with the band. I think that hopefully they will stand the test of time. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, this has been Eric Reanimator, and I hope you guys enjoy this. Oh, 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 and just one more thing. I want to point out that their first album, The Ghost That Haunts Me, produced by one Steve Berlin, includes a cover of Androgynous by The Replacements. Who else in 1991 was covering The Replacements? That alone should uh, get you to check out one of their early albums. Okay, later all. The hospital always Someday I'll have A disappearing hairline
Thanks very much, Eric, for another great album I love segment. He'll be back next month. It's December 2016, so he'll be back in the main episode of Love That Album, but I'll tell you more about that in a couple of minutes. But once again, thank you very much, Ben Eisen, for a all too long period away from Love That Album. Thank you so much for keeping the faith and coming back. Oh, absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And look, I recently appeared on All Time Top 10. We had a fantastic time discussing tribute songs. So search that episode out if you haven't already done it. I've been on the show, I think, about seven times, and it's always a blast. But for the one or two people who listen to this show who may not have gotten around to listening to All Time Top 10, Please explain what it is and what your activities have been of late. Cool. Well, um, if you haven't heard it, yeah, what is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's fine. Um, it is a music podcast, and uh, it's we just celebrated our fifth anniversary, five years. It's a weekly podcast, too, so we're coming up on 244 episodes, Wow, something like that, something insane like that. And um, basically, it's a countdown show. Um, every week, it's a different guest. It's a different topic. Morris has been on, I think, seven times. Hmm. And um, we do topics like uh, the one that you and I just did, top 10 tribute songs. And those are like songs that are tributes to other musicians. And I have my top 10 list and the guest Named, you know, in this case, Morris has his top 10 list and we count them down. We you know go back and forth, counting them down from 10 to 1 and we, we end up playing 20 songs. And you hear portions of the song, you hear some you know fun facts and trivia and just goofy little uh, insights into the recording and things like that. Been lucky to have lots of really amazing guests. I've met so many cool people and found and learned so much in the five years I've been doing the show. Um, so many artists that are now like some of my favorite artists that I had never even heard before starting the show. And uh, coming up soon, we have um, top ten power ballads of the '90s. 
We have one that I, <laughs> yep, one that I taped last night, which is uh, going to be coming up in later December, uh, just in time for Festivus for you Seinfeld fans out there. Um, this is top ten songs from the complaint department, our list of grievances, and it's a it's a Festivus miracle. So we um, break down particular artists, like we have a Tori Amos episode coming soon. Uh, we break down specific years, like we'll do like, top 10 songs of 1979, um, whatever it is. It's always different. It's always varietal, as our friend David Daskal would say. And, um, I've got to thank you through your show introducing me to David Daskal. He's appeared on Love That Album, and I need to have him back. And uh, I, I shouldn't really play favorites, but I do love David Daskal. I think he's hugely entertaining, and he just has a lot of interesting stuff to say in a very entertaining way. So um, He's a funny fella, for sure. So absolutely. You'll, you'll hear him on the show very soon. Very cool. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, the show can be found at iTunes, uh, you know, all the, all the usual places that you find podcasts. The website is alltimetop10.podomatic.com. Um, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. All the archives, by the way, which you can go back and listen to every Morris episode, um, mm-hmm. are mixcloud.com. Mixcloud.com. Look for All Time Top 10 there. And you can listen to Morris doing Top 10 uh, Wordsmiths, mm. Rocksmiths. Uh, we did, what else did we do? Beatles covers. Beatles covers, yes. Uh, we did uh, top ten Wilco songs and top ten Ben Folds songs. That's right. There's at least two more in there, I think. No, oh, I have to look them up. There I'm the king. Somewhere. I'm the king of spreadsheets. I've got like oh, hard times. Songs of hard times. Songs, yeah, doing it tough. Doing it tough. <laughs> songs about death was one. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah, songs of death went through in your through your shocktober of a couple of years ago. That was a lot of fun. And uh, I think we, we had songs of, uh, we, we even had some humorous songs about death because, you know, death is a funny subject. Oh, it's hilarious. Oh, dear. All right. And you, you were mentioning there that you've gone and uh, learned a lot about uh, a whole bunch of artists that you hadn't heard. And I have to say that one particular artist who I heard of on the for the first time on your show this year was Emmett Rhodes, who I'd never heard of before this year. I went out and bought his album purely because your guest, Chris Price, had mentioned him and you, you played it an earlier track, if I recall correctly. But uh, I, play, I, I went and bought the new album that Chris Price went and put together uh, as mm. producer for him. And I'm an amazing record. Really, really impressed. I'd love to go back. And, and go through uh, his archive. Fascinating yeah, guy. He doesn't have much. I think he's got two albums. But yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff that we love. That, that's the kind of stuff that, that keeps us coming back, doing more shows, is uh, turning people on to great music, including myself, because I, I don't know everything. And I, I love being turned on to great music. And that's what we're all about every week on All Time Top 10. So, tell me, did you ever get to a point where you think, I've run out of ideas, I've run out of subjects, or you think, no, endless, I've, I've written a spreadsheet, I've got a thousand more subjects? Um, every every day I think of another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Right. Yeah. Have you, has anyone ever said, said to you, oh, look, I've got an idea for a topic, and you thought, oh, that one's a little obscure? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've turned, turned ideas away just because... Because I'm a control freak about my show. <laughs> you heard it first here, folks. Or maybe you didn't hear it first. I don't know. No. And probably the, the other thing that we should uh, briefly talk about is you are not just a podcaster, raconteur. You are also a working musician. And in particular, you yourself have gone and released an album this year with your lovely wife, Shannon Hurley. You call yourselves Lovers and Poets. Tell us about the Lovers and Poets album that you released this year. 
Yeah, it's called Lovers and Poets 2. It's our second album, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's sort of a synth pop, uh, electronic uh, kind of thing. Think uh, Moby, think Portishead, stuff like that. And it's got uh, my beautiful and talented wife, Shannon Hurley, um, singing and um, providing the uh, lyrics and melodies. And uh, the two of us collaborate on beats and programming choices. And I well, I play bass on every song and some guitar and stuff, but uh, it's mostly like just a musically it's a collaboration, but the songs are Shannon's. And um, if you haven't heard her voice, it's pretty uh, it's pretty special. So it is. It's lovely, lovely. You've got that very breathy sound that, that I'm a big, big fan of. Shannon is a, a rising star in the trance world as well. She's uh, been a vocal vocalist and songwriter for a lot of uh, bigger trance songs of the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a name there. It's not my scene, but uh, when she sings it, it's pretty good. We uh, we actually had Shannon on Love That Album about a year ago. We were speaking about Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was very proud to be the, uh, the, I don't know if it was certainly the first podcast, but I don't know, the, the first electronic medium to uh, play uh, You and Me in the Summer uh, out there. I was very honored to uh, have yeah, her. It was world, world premiere. World premiere. It was a, a beautiful song. And there was something about, I can't remember if it was that song or if it was another one, the, the piano part, I said to her at the time, I said, because you're playing up at the high notes, the high end of the piano, it's something very Joe Jackson-ish uh, about, about that approach. And uh, I, think, I think she rather liked that comparison. Although we've been off air some, some Joe Jackson stories, but that's another thing. Yeah, I think if you have her on, she's going to want to talk Joe Jackson at some point too. I think we've I think we've done Joe Jackson a couple of times, but I, I don't think I'd be against the idea of uh, doing him again. Let's uh, let, we'll, we'll find an agreeable. I'm actually, I think the last time David Gaskell was on, uh, well, the only time David Gaskell was on, we, we did Joe Jackson. So. Find something else. We'll, we'll definitely find something for, for her. That's uh, for sure. I'd love to have her back. There you go. There are your two big projects: the, um, the Lovers and yep. Poets. And, and how, how can people uh, find a copy of that of that uh, recording? Uh, Lovers and Poets at Bandcamp. Look for that there. That's the best place to get to go. But it's also on iTunes, and you can listen to it on Spotify and all that other stuff. So. Which I highly yep. recommend you do. And as for those of you out there who've been listening to me long enough, you know that I'm not necessarily uh, a great electronica fan, but the songwriting and this is this is what this show is about and what our whole discussion for the last hour and a half has been about is great songwriting will always shine over doesn't matter the medium in which it's presented here here got it in spades yeah it's a great great album i got myself a copy earlier on this year and uh, i really really enjoy it so well done to the both of you so let's talk about next month that's december 2016 coming up folks so for those of you who have been listening to the show for the last few years you know that December is the month where the show, we go on a, um, what's been happening this year? What have we discovered? We have normally called it under the guise of the shooting the shit crew. And we talk about our favorite first time listens for the year. So by that, it means, you know, we can have, we can pick our favorite albums that came out that year, but because we're always discovering things in a given year that other people may have discovered 30, 40 years ago, but it's new to you. I say to uh, who, you know, the, the co- my cohorts on the show, 
pick the your favorite first time listens for the year so if they were all albums from 1973 but they're new to you that's brilliant it's all about making recommendations for the listeners out there or the excitement of finding out why what it is that you love about something that other people have taken for granted so that's going to be december 2016's show it's going to be not the usual shooting the shit crew it's going to be the see here crew so i have the other podcast see here where we talk about music related films so i've invited uh my cohorts from that and my good friends tim merrill and bernie stickwell and also because he's an integral part of this program i've invited eric peterson aka eric reanimator to join us so the four of us are going to go through our favorite first time listens for 2016 but i've got to tell you uh, i listened to some really great new albums this year it's very likely that most if not all of my favorite albums of this that i've heard this year are 2016 albums but we'll see i haven't made the list yet so uh, that'll be coming out probably in the week between christmas and new year so once you've gone and done all your Christmassy stuff and gotten your family commitments and family dinners out of the way or you've finished spinning the dreidel and eating all the latkes, then just sit back and uh, for, sit back and listen to uh, episode 97, the uh, end of year special for Love That Album. If uh, you want to get in contact with us, send an email to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. If you want to send me in what your favorite albums of this year or your favorite first time listens of the year, I'd love to know. And I will read any correspondence I have out on air during the program. You want to join the Facebook group. We're a friendly crew. Facebook.com Facebook com forward slash groups forward slash love that album and uh if you want to uh find any other way to track down the podcast itunes or love that album blogspot.com i think we've covered it all uh so um just final thing to say is thank you so much ben for being a part of this episode and i promise i will not leave it as long before the next one uh actually might be a nice thing to have uh, both you and shannon on the same program oh that's an idea we'll, we'll, we'll come up with something good for that you bet and thank so Frank, thanks for having me uh, absolutely my pleasure and yeah so we'll do this again sooner than later for sure yeah uh, all right so um once again folks out there um, thanks for listening be nice to each other listen to a lot of great music watch some great films read great books but bottom line is love your albums because they need loving and they need care and they need attention okay we'll see you in december of 2016 for episode 97 all the best cheers take me dancing out on the sand this time it's easy it's in It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 